I've already shared with you from uh, Robin Gowdy and Chris Swain's book called Replicate. Uh, but I want to share a little bit more with you from that book using a play on words. I like the way he says that Jesus didn't just save us from sin. He saved us for something. For the past two weeks, we've talked about how Jesus gave us a commission to make reproducible followers of Him. Now here's the play on words that, that Robbie and Chris use in their book. He goes on to say, it's called the Great Co-Mission. And he has a hyphen between the O and the mission. It's called the Great Co-Mission for a reason. God expects our involvement. And He does. That's very biblical. Here is the statement of that co-mission that we've been given. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I cannot emphasize it enough I cannot emphasize it too much that the command that you and I have been given by Jesus is to be making disciples. Bill Hull, who happens to be the director of the Bonhoeffer Project, once said that our churches exist for making disciples. And disciples are God's gift to the world. In his book that he titled The Cost of Cheap Grace, he quotes Bonhoeffer, who once said that Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. And herein is the problem. Reminding his readers of the maxim, you reap what you sow, Bill laments the fact that 96%, I don't know how he came up with the statistic, but 96% of all Christians have not been taught to make disciples. Not how to do it, or even what we are to be doing it, and that we're to be doing it. Just this week, on Facebook, of course, of all places, once again, a young lady entered into a discussion with the acclamation that we can't be disciples until we're Christians. Well, obviously that's true. But in her comments, she was trying to separate the fact that we have to accept Jesus as our Savior. And then we can start reading and studying and being a good disciple. You don't find that in Scripture. You don't find that in Scripture. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior if He's not the Lord of your life. The command from Jesus was to make disciples, not to count converts. You don't find an easy package like just go to the last page and sign your name and say you believe. 
And the line that I want to emphasize this morning from that discipleship, disciple maker's prayer that I handed out to you and I hope you're using, the line I want to emphasize from that this morning is when the prayer says, draw my heart to you and to specific people. You want me to pull close for Jesus-like disciple-making friendships. And once more, for emphasis, he says, draw my heart to you. That is what I'm going to be talking about this morning in terms of, of the with component. Help me to feel the pull of your spirit to be with you. And to specific people you want me to pull close for Jesus-like disciple-making friendships. Again, help me to realize the importance you place on being sent. Going out and making those friendships. So, as we continue to think in terms of the pattern, we've been given an example to imitate and we have said that the way we're to do that is to walk so closely to our Lord, to Christ, to our teacher, to our rabbi. Didn't Mary in the garden call him Rabboni? To walk so close that we're covered by the dust of His feet. Now, the image I've chosen for you to focus on relates to our context for today. First century education which Jesus and his contemporaries would have experienced, involved three stages. The first was called Beth Sefer, the equivalent of elementary education. The young people started into it around ages four to five and stayed in that till about the age of ten. And in that, they were taught reading and, and even memorizing passages from the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The second stage of that education was called Beth Talmud. At age 10, formal schooling for most of the young kids would come to a close. My grandfather lived in an age at which when you completed grammar school, unless you wanted to go to college, that was it. You didn't go on to high school. That was only for the ones that were going to go to college. Okay? A lot of that same model that comes out of this ancient way that at 10, with a formal schooling coming to an end, it was time for them to learn the family trade. And by the way, Jesus did that. How is Jesus referred to by those who are not a part of the disciples and the group that followed? The carpenter. The trade of his father. The best, the advanced students would continue though in what was called Beth Midrash and they would be studying and memorizing the rest of Hebrew Scripture. So that at about age 15, a few of them would be seeking a rabbi. They would be going out trying to impress the rabbis with their abilities, with their knowledge. I understand from those of my friends, I've never had the opportunity to tour the Holy Land. Um, that's kind of on my bucket list. And uh, that list needs to be getting worked on, you know. Uh, but anyway, uh, I've never had the opportunity to tour the Holy Land. But some of my friends who were there would uh, 
said that young Jewish males would come running up and of course they'd be doing the money sign but they would say ask me verse ask me a verse and they would quote from the Torah Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, at church camp, we often ask kids to memorize different passages of Scripture. But we don't come anywhere close to asking them to even memorize a book in the Bible. Uh, my dad said that when he went to Lincoln Bible Institute back in the 50s, 54 to 58, one of his assignments in Gospels class was they had to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. And it caused him his first truck driving accident ever. He had gone home for one of the school breaks and his boss said that he had a load to help him out with money. And so he took it and he had the Sermon on the Mount on 3x5 index cards. And he was driving along on a route that he was on all the time, coming back in empty. And he had that card up on the steering wheel, memorizing. And he went under a bridge that he had been under many, many times, he said. But on this time, he didn't notice a 4x4 that was laying on the ground. And it was enough to bounce him to peel the trail. Uh, normally, he fit under it with no problem. But uh, they were still required at that time to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. Now listen to me. The rabbis didn't go around randomly calling for disciples to follow them. The young students went out trying to convince a rabbi to let them study under them. And that's why it's very important when Paul says that he was a student under Gamaliel. Because Gamaliel was the Harvard, the Princeton, the Yale, the Ivy League education. Paul studied under the best. Which means, which you see it in his writings, Paul had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and many other passages memorized. They didn't have the opportunity that we have of going on a computer and pulling something up and highlighting it and pasting it into a document when they were writing. They didn't have those scrolls which were bulky and numerous. It came from memory. The normal procedure was for the young person to seek out the rabbi they wanted to learn under, who they would be a disciple of, and they would do their best to impress them with their knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures and their desire for learning. So what we see in our text for today is how Jesus stepped outside that box, so to speak, by choosing His disciples. So let's go to His Word. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And He went up on the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired, and they came to Him. And He appointed twelve, whom He also named apostles, so that they might be with Him, and the, that He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom He gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom He gave the name Boerges, that is, sons of thunder, 
Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. By the way, in both lists of the apostles, though the couplets are different, the same two are always named together in the list. It's like six groups of two, which I think is interesting because later Jesus says he sent them out two by two, and already we have an indication that they're being paired together in groups of two. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they sent to out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. May God add a blessing to our reading of the Word this morning. I want to start out with the end of our text. I want to start out with the last sentence of this final paragraph. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they, that is his family, went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. Two things. One, this word to seize him is the same word that Mark uses in the Garden of Gethsemane when it talks about the soldiers and the group of uh, priests and all coming out to seize him to arrest Jesus. That's the nature of that word. And the very structure of the rest of chapter 3 helps us know that None other than the family of Jesus who, when they hear Jesus is attracting a crowd, they come out. They come out to get Him. And according to His family's view of the situation, their accusation is that He is out of His mind. Literally. He's standing outside of Himself. Now, this isn't unique to Mark. John chapter 7. John begins the chapter by saying that Jesus would not go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to, to uh, kill Him. And the setting is, is that it was a time for the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And that was one of the three great festivals at which every Jewish male, no matter how far they were away from Jerusalem, were expected to travel to Jerusalem for that festival. Well, John tells us that Jesus' brothers, which would have included, by the way, James and Jude, they were taunting him about going to Jerusalem to attend the feast. They said, well, if you've got a message that you want to get out to the world, then, quote, show yourself to the world. Go down to Jerusalem. Go down to the feast. Chapter 7 of John, verse 8, John says, For not even his brothers believed in him. Now we're going to come back to this, but Mark makes it clear in verse 31 that it is the family members who are standing outside by contrast with those who are inside with Jesus. So the question we must answer and those early readers of Mark's Gospel had to answer the same question. 
The question we have to answer is, are we really willing to identify ourselves with Jesus as true disciples? Since even His own family has rejected Him. Now this is a question that concludes the chapter, which began with the religious leaders searching for a reason to accuse Him. And then in verses 7 to 12, we're told that great crowds began to follow Him. But verse 11 of that section, Mark says that whenever the unclean spirits saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out, You're the Son of God. You hear that? The unclean spirits, the demons, they know who Jesus is. They know that Jesus is the Son of God. So does their knowledge of who Jesus is, does their knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God bring them salvation? Not hardly. We are not saved just by the fact that we know that Jesus is the Son of the living God. That's not in the Bible. It's not scriptural. We're not, cho- we're not told those, dis- those demons chose to be disciples. We don't know that Jesus' family all came around. We do know at least that Mary continued. Church tradition, in fact, says that the Apostle John took her with him to Ephesus and was involved in the church in Ephesus. And James and Jude, two of the brothers that I already mentioned, would follow and write two of the letters, the books that we have in the New Testament. James and Jude in the New Testament are written by sons of Mary and Joseph, brothers of Jesus. So, that's how our text concluded. Why do you think it concluded that way? That that section? Because notice that as we began reading our text today, Jesus did something very symbolic and very self-revealing. He goes up on the mountain. And this is where we can see the affirmation that Jesus gives. He called... Verse 13 says, He called to Him those whom He desired. Mark makes it a point to tell us that this particular scene in which the twelve disciples are appointed and named takes place on a mountain. Now for the ancients, the mountain was the place of encounter with deity. The Greek pantheon was thought to dwell on Mount Olympus. And Israel's God was believed to be present in a special way in the temple on Mount Zion. In fact, as a part of Israel's story of origin, Moses first encountered God. The story we know of as the burning bush that wasn't consumed. Where'd that happen? On a mountain. In fact, Mount Sinai, chapter 3 of Exodus, uh, where following the cloud and the pillar of fire, He would lead them back to Mount Sinai where they would enter into that covenant relationship with God. Exodus chapter 19. So, 
the setting of this scene, the calling of the twelve on a mountain, the calling of the twelve disciples, twelve tribes of Israel, it led the early Christians to believe that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God had redefined the covenant and the covenant people. And so it's important, an important affirmation that He called to Him those whom He desired. And it's not only the fact that Jesus called them, uh, the words kind of echoing the call of Peter and Andrew and James and John back in chapter 1, But I think it's also a reminder of the many instances in the Bible in which God calls the chosen people. For instance, Isaiah chapter 42 verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. And Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And that phrase, whom he also called apostles, it seems to have a dual function. Uh, again, forming one of those brackets, one of those inclusios around this section of Mark, but also emphasizing the very missionary character of the new people of God as those who are sent out. And here's what's important to me today. Just as the original twelve had been called to be with Jesus and to be His co-workers, you and I, as the body of Christ, have been called, we've been chosen, we've been given responsibility. Also, the emphasis seen in the words, those whom He desired, I think that's upon the deliberate, the intentional, the purposeful nature of Jesus' actions. And again, it would have reminded his readers of the words of Isaiah chapter 41. There Isaiah says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you, and not cast you off. Fear not, listen, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I'll strengthen you, I will help you, I'll uphold you with my righteous hand. Remember the closing words of Matthew's Gospel? The Great Commission? How did he end it? I think we should hear in that the emphasis of Isaiah 41. And behold, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that brings me to my final point, which has to do with authority. The authorization. It says He appointed. He appointed those twelve so that they might be with Him and He might send them. And I think Mark's now getting to the heart of what it means to be a disciple. With the apostles as a clear example. Choice, call, obedience, appointment, and yes, separation, but not geographical separation. Separation in terms of holy living. Those are all involved. And the task is twofold. Drawing on Christ's presence by being with Him. And second, being sent out to preach and cast out demons. Gathering together 
which is what we're doing this morning. But this is only a small part. The bigger part is when we leave these doors after gathering, we are to be scattering to make disciples. The balance is not easy to keep. It's not easy to live in that tension. Many Christians at least seem to want to spend much more time being with Jesus. And if in fact that's even what's happening in our church meetings and fellowships and committees and services. Much less in terms of being sent, proclaiming and casting out demons or, or bringing liberty. One of the concerns for years, one of my concerns for years, in fact, it was a part of the dialogue that I had with Dallas Christian College nearly a decade ago now. They flew Jesse and I down there where we were talking about possibly coming there for me to be one of the professors on the staff. And my whole area of work was going to be in the area of practical ministries. Helping young men to understand not just what they learn in the books, but what it means to actually go out to train your churches to go out to be a scattering people doing God's will. If the majority of our planning, if the majority of our ministering involves an inward looking perspective on church life, it can lead to a narrowing down of our perception of the good news of the gospel and how it reaches and meets needs. The missionary perspective of proclamation and casting out the evil, binding spiritual forces, demands for us to at least test our understanding of the good news of the gospel in the setting of those who don't believe. Last night, uh, we had finished up the meal and we got up and I walked over to the owner of the little restaurant where we were at. And I reached in my pocket. It wasn't anything super. It wasn't anything massive. It wasn't anything uh, noteworthy. I just I reached in my pocket, got one of my business cards, handed it to him, and I said, enjoy the meal. If there's anything I can do for you, this is who I am. Thank you. Just planting a little seed. Letting him know who we as a group were. You see, and this is what brings me to my challenge for this morning. As I said earlier, it's the second part of the inclusio involving Jesus' family. To be one who does the will of God. Verse 35. Verse 32 says, And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. They had obviously come back to another occasion. They've returned. And they are on the outside, not on the inside with Him. And so I think by His focus on the crowd surrounding Jesus, Mark gives us a visual impression of the gathering of the circle of Jesus' followers. And in declaring this group to be His true family, Jesus suggests a greater degree of coherence than merely just some kind of ad hoc gathering. In this context, no doubt the Jerusalem scribes, verse 23, thought that they were doing the will of God. And surely His family did as well. And this portrayal of the Jesus circle 
as a family in which members are related to him as brother is remarkable in the light of the evidence that Mark wishes us to see as his readers to perceive Jesus as a person of unique status and authority, the Son of God, and whose ministry the Old Testament promises of the coming of God Himself are being fulfilled. <coughs> I want to close with the words of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. The writer of Hebrews says, For he who sanctifies... Who would that be? Jesus. He who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, all have one source. That is why He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Addressing that to God. How can we have that relationship? By being doers of the Word. How did Jesus end that great Sermon on the Mount? With a story. A story about a wise man and a foolish man. And the wise man? Well, he built his house upon the rock. And when the rains came down and the floods came up, the house of the, on the rock stood firm. The foolish man says he built his house on the sand. And when the rains came down and the floods came up, the house that was on the sand went flat. And Jesus said, the wise are the ones who are those who are hearing the Word and doing the Word. Not just hearers only. James says, don't be fooled. Don't be hearers of the Word only. Be with Jesus, but be a doer by being sent. Let's pray. Father God, as we continue this idea of what it means to be a true disciple, help us to dig deeper. To not be satisfied with some of those platitudes that we were taught from young age. That... Yes, grace is opposed to works in the sense of grace of works being able to earn our salvation. It can't do that. But help us to understand that grace is no, in no way opposed to works as the outflow of our love and our obedience. Help us to be doers and not hearers only. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.